everybody. Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today I'm going to bring you a conversation that I had with David Savage. He's been reporting for the Los Angeles Times on the Supreme Court and other legal issues since 1986. I really loved having this conversation with him because he has such a breadth of knowledge when it comes to the Supreme Court, and he's able to look at how it has changed over decades. We talked about a number of big issues that we cover on the podcast. We talked about what a judge's role is, judicial activism. We talked about originalism. We talked about the Chief Justice, Chief Justice John Roberts, and his power over the court and where he's frankly losing some of his power. So, I had a great time with David Savage. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as well. And here it is. My first question um, is, why did you start covering the Supreme Court? How did that become your beat? I think I got very lucky. I had uh, worked in Washington as a young reporter. I went out to LA. I was an education writer. I really wanted to come back to Washington. And I realized early in my career that I was a person who liked to write about issue stories, not people so much. I wasn't an investigator. Reporters, just like lawyers, have very different personalities and what they're interested in. I realized I like to write about interesting big legal issues, and you couldn't do better than the Supreme Court. I thought then, and I think now, to me, it was the ideal beat for a journalist because they take on really big legal questions. There's a good argument on both sides. There are very capable lawyers. There's a lot to read that you can actually learn about. This area of law, I didn't know anything about. So I liked it from the beginning. I thought it was a great beat. I know some of my friends would say, oh, you don't get to talk to the justices in the hallway. I said, that's fine. Anyway, I liked it very much. And um, I just think it's a great beat for a journalist. And I can also see why all lawyers are sort of fascinated by the Supreme Court. You mentioned, David, that you don't get to talk to the justices in the hallway, like maybe if you were covering Congress or covering the Senate. And it made me think, how much of your reporting and how much of the reporting leading up to the decisions and then the decisions, do you think their personalities and their personal ideologies play into that? Not much. I guess what I've discovered, and I think a lot of people discover this, is that um, when you talk to these people, I always find I like all of them. I know most of them. I don't know all of them well, but I remembered from the very early on, I started the same time Rehnquist became chief justice. I got to know Justice Scalia. I could go up and talk to him. I could talk to Lewis Powell standing in the hallway. And I always liked them as people. They've got a tough job. It's a serious job. They have different ideologies. But as individuals, I like them very much. I uh, gotten to know Amy Barrett a little bit. I've run into Neil Gorsuch here and there around town. I would go running down along the river. And one Sunday morning, uh, I see this fellow standing on a dock over there. I thought, geez, looks a lot like Neil Gorsuch. So I went over and talked to him. He was going out rowing on the river. So anyway, I just like them very much, but it doesn't really tell you much about their legal views or their ideology. That's another whole matter, but they're nice people. How much of this current court, we hear some reporting sometimes, I'm asking this because you mentioned they all seem like nice people or they're nice to you and you enjoy talking to them. Does this court seem to get along as well as other courts? I mean, I think from the outside, 
some of the dissents do seem a little bit more personal, a little bit more heated, but maybe we're forgetting what other dissents and other concurrences looked like maybe 10 or 20 years ago. It's a very good point, Jessica. I would say, yes, they disagree on a lot, but the whole time I've been there, they've always disagreed on a lot. You know, Justice Scalia would blow up every spring and go rant about his uh, colleagues and what was wrong with the court and how they're making over America. We shouldn't be doing this. There's always been a lot of vitriol on the issues. I do think the last couple of years, Elena Kagan and the liberals were hoping that story decisis and precedent that they could sort of hold the line on Roe versus Wade and whatever. That's not worked out well. So there's a lot of, I think, animosity about that last spring. They seem a little more restrained this year, and, and they're taking on a lot of small cases that are really hard. And every time you go up to I listen to them, I think they actually like this because uh, Justice Kennedy used to say, I always like it when we get a big tax case or whatever. So that he and Nino were not fighting over something like abortion or gay marriage or whatever. And so my impression is the conservatives are not happy with John Roberts. Roberts is a guy who tried to sort of find a middle position on a lot of issues. He thinks that's what he should do. They sort of think he's playing to the crowd or whatever, but there is some animosity on the right. But to me, it doesn't seem all that different than it has been over the years. There's always been sort of push and pull and they argue and disagree and then they get over it. I'd love to follow up on what you just said about John Roberts, because it seems to me that for a lot of people who don't have your vantage point, he's kind of a misunderstood figure in terms of his power, his ideology, and how he writes his opinions and where he really wants to go. And I've always had the question of, is he just as conservative as his most conservative colleagues, but he just wants to get to that end point in a slightly different way. He wants to get there more slowly and hopefully bring the public with him because he really cares about the legitimacy of the court and the institution. Or does he fundamentally have a different ideology than the more conservative justices? You just used the word misunderstood. I think he's misunderstood and I find him hard to read. I sort of lean to your view, which I think is correct, which is that his tendency has been to make big decisions in two or three steps. And he seems to think, as you said, that it's more legitimate or whatever. And that seemed to be his view on abortion. We don't know for sure because they moved ahead of him. But in the end, he goes along with the most conservative result. So if there is a middle John Roberts position that stays there as a matter of principle, I'm not sure what it is. So that's why I said that you correctly used the term misunderstood. And I think that's what's a problem with his colleagues. With William Rehnquist, you knew where he was from day one. You know, he didn't change. They all sort of like the fact that, yes, he's very conservative, but he's very upfront about his views and he's very charming and agreeable. Roberts is a little bit, there's been a couple of times where the term comes to an end and there's a case like the citizenship question on the census or the repeal of DACA where in April and May, it looked like Roberts was with the conservatives and he switched in June and took a more middle of the road position and it didn't play well with his colleagues. And so he's a little bit of a mystery to us and to them. 
I wonder if we could talk about those cases. You mentioned the citizenship question on the census, uh, the decision by the Trump administration to try and basically unwind DACA, if I understood you correctly. And then, of course, there's the big decision that I talk about with my students, the Obamacare decision, the decision that upheld at least most of and the framework of the Affordable Care Act. And I wonder if you could briefly bring us back to that time and that place. And I remember when we first started talking about the Obamacare decision, that one of the things I heard in the reporting was John Roberts flipped at the last minute, that he was going to vote with the conservatives. He flipped his vote. He's voting with the liberals and that the opinion doesn't even look like it was supposed to be a majority opinion. Could you bring us back to that time and why we thought that and and what your sense of what happened behind the scenes was? Well, you stated it correctly. I can imagine teaching that case because I can read his opinion. You know, we're talking about how he got there, but his opinion at least makes sense to me. The census case and some of the DACA cases, I find them even reading them. I thought, I can't exactly understand the legal logic of his opinion. On Obamacare, there were five votes to basically strike down the law in April. At that time of the argument, I was astonished how locked in they were. Kennedy wanted to strike down the entire law. John Roberts also knew, though, that he went up to the court promising, I'm not going to be the guy who's going to legislate from the bench. You remember that 20 years of Republican rhetoric was that the Supreme Court shouldn't be making these big political decisions. The political branches should make them. Well, lo and behold, the Democrats control Congress and the White House. They passed a historic once in a generation health care law and the conservative justices want to come down and strike. To- and so Roberts actually was sensitive to that criticism. And he went in search of a middle position. He thought Kennedy would go along with a middle position, but he wouldn't. Roberts then made the decision he had to do it on his own. I remember we had a lunch with him in June of that year, and he talked about Charles Evans Hughes, about how much he admired Hughes. And I listened to him talk, and I listened to him talk, and I thought, wow, Hughes was in that same position. You know, the conservative court ran up against Franklin Roosevelt. They were overturning the laws. And at some point, Hughes realized, wait a minute, we're going too far. And he pulled the court back from the abyss, in effect. And the more Roberts talked, the more I thought, that's what he thinks he's doing. He was pulling the court back from striking down, as I say, a historic sweeping health care law, five conservative Republican justices. And Roberts knew that he didn't want to go there. He then formulated his, I thought, a very reasonable middle position, which was, even if this may not be commerce, because forcing people to buy insurance maybe is not commerce. That was his view. All it was was a tax penalty. And so he thought it made sense to uphold it on the tax grounds. And you know, he also thought the states had a reasonable argument that they shouldn't be required to, uh, you know, they, they used a metaphor, have a gun to your head right. to expand Medicaid. Anyway, he came around to, in my opinion, a reasonable middle thought out position that was the four on the left would have upheld the entire law. The four on the right would have struck it down. And he found the middle position. And I actually thought that was one of his 
in my opinion, one of his great moments because he took a moment of real crisis like Charles Evans used in the court of the 1930s and found a reasonable middle position that saved the law, although it did trim it quite a bit. I actually want to talk to you about the court of the 1930s a little bit in a moment because it is something that I talk to my students about and we talk about the Lochner era and why that should be viewed as a negative thing. And you already brought up the idea of judicial activism being negative, but I want to stay with this decision by John Roberts for a moment because it seems to me you said something so interesting, which rings true, which is that he both wanted to pull the court back from maybe an existential crisis that he wanted to not preside over the court that just struck down this sweeping new piece of legislation, but that he found a good legal reason to do that. And I guess this is a bit of a hypothetical, but do you think if there had been five votes without him to uphold the ACA, Obamacare, that he would have been comfortable basically joining the conservatives? Or did he separately and independently feel that, yes, this is in fact a tax penalty and we should view it as a proper use of Congress's taxing authority? As you know, we're both talking hypothetically, but my guess is the first one you said, that if John Roberts were John Roberts, Justice John Roberts, and not Chief Justice John Roberts, I think he would have been with the conservatives and said, this is an over abuse of the congressional commerce power. He would have been with the conservatives. But as the chief justice and the person sort of in the middle, he found a middle ground that sort of saved the law. But I think at the time of that argument, and he's much more susceptible to the arguments on the conservative side, I think all things considered, if he could have voted with the conservatives in dissent, he would have. I have one more question for you on the Obamacare decision, just because it's something that I teach and I talk to my students about. And we talk about why was the decision upheld under Congress's taxing authority as opposed to the Commerce Clause authority. And my understanding is that the majority view at the time was this is a pretty easy case for the Commerce Clause, that health insurance is huge business, healthcare is huge business. There are lots of interstate Commerce Clause consequences and questions, and there's enough here, and there's really no reason to pivot to the taxing clause. But I wonder if based on your reporting and really being there at the moment, is that a little bit of a overblown, simplistic view of how good that Commerce Clause argument really was? Well, <laughs> I thought it was a very good argument. And and this was health insurance. And a lot of people said, and, and you said, most people said, well, of course that's commerce. It, it's health insurance. But Paul Clement and the attorneys on the other side made a argument that Roberts and the conservatives agreed to, which was, oh, that's fine. If you were regulating insurance plans that were already in effect, that's fine. But what this law is telling people is, and what we're objecting to, is the mandate to buy a private product they don't want. And so if you look at it from the point of view of Paul Clement say, look at the guy and sitting in his living room, he doesn't want to participate in this. He doesn't want to buy this product. The government is forcing somebody 
to buy a product or engage in commerce. And the Commerce Clause can't mean that. That was their view. And, and Roberts was with them. So I know that we don't have unlimited time. I really want to get to this question of judicial activism with you. And you mentioned the 1930s, and I've talked about this with my students as this being the Lochner era, where we largely viewed the court as being out of step with popular opinion with the two other branches. And I think you mentioned FDR briefly and how the court was kind of bumping up against President Roosevelt. I'm wondering if you could give us your definition of basically what judicial activism is and why it's seen as a negative. Well, as I think the traditional view of judicial activism is what Justice Scalia used to say and, and what the conservatives used to say, which was that the judges and the justices should not be deciding a whole lot of questions that are political questions, either to be decided by the Congress and the president or by the states, and that the court makes a mistake and made a mistake in the Warren era and in the 70s of deciding this is obviously a continuum question, right? I mean, this, but deciding too many things of sort of saying, when I was a young reporter, like school desegregation and busing was a huge issue. Every town around the country was sort of fighting about, and the Supreme Court was saying, you've got to do this. You've got to integrate. And abortion became that in the 70s. Prior to Roe, it had been an issue that was off. And suddenly the Supreme Court intervenes and it controls everything about abortion. Prayer in schools was like that. And so there were a whole series of issues where the court got too involved and we had to stand back and be more restrained, more cautious. That was the conservative mantra. I think it appealed to a lot of people because they thought, you know, Scalia used to give these speeches everywhere about who are we to decide on abortion and a death penalty? That's for other people to decide. I think it was a very appealing idea. As I said, I wish more of the conservatives still believed it. But it does seem like a malleable issue. As you said, it's a bit of a spectrum. And the response, it seems to me, is, but who else will protect certain individual rights from the majority having sometimes a tendency to burden those rights? That is the tension. And I guess the answer is you, you want to um, find rights that seem to be clearly protected by the Constitution and defend them. The current court, in my view, has picked not exactly the best ones to say that the Second Amendment creates this seemingly unlimited right to guns. I don't think it was read that way or meant that way, but that's their view. So they're going to be quite activist in striking down gun laws. And I, as I say, I wish they were a little more the judicial restraint conservatives that they used to be. I think that's such an important point about judicial activism and judicial restraint. And you mentioned rights protected by the Constitution. The court is obviously now we see this in the Second Amendment, as you mentioned, we see this with respect to abortion. And we see, in my view, the conservatives espousing a new way of determining whether or not rights should be located in the Constitution. And I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what is generally, I think, the concept of originalism and what is the conservative court's current approach to those questions? Is it narrower than it used to be? I don't know 
and you don't and we don't know their true approach to the provisions like the Liberty Clause, because we know that Clarence Thomas has the view that there is no such thing as substantive due process. There are no rights. The moderate conservative view was the old Rehnquist view was, yes, there are things that are protected by liberty, but they're sort of traditional and understood rights. You know, you have a right to travel across state lines, or and maybe parents have a right to have something to say about their child's education. Or right. Those are traditional rights. Rehnquist was trying to say assisted suicide is not a traditional right. This was in you know, the late 90s. And he was also basically saying abortion, we sort of created it, but it wasn't an accepted and understood right. So I think there on the conservative side is we will uphold rights that are sort of understood. But if you come to us and say, what's a new right? Is there a right to use heroin or whatever? No, there's not. And then I think we're going to get to learn about a whole series of things like transgender students and um, how about traveling across state lines for abortion? Is that a protected, understood right because it's traveling across state lines or is it not because it's abortion? There's there's going to be a lot of, I think, interesting disputes down the road. We will learn more about what their actual view of, of those basic rights is. You, of course, mentioned something that's in the news today, traveling across state lines to obtain an abortion. Right. So, David, is it somewhat fair to say potentially that the current court is locating certain rights that are enumerated, like the Second Amendment rights, and viewing them as quite broad, maybe broader than I personally think they should be? But when it comes to unenumerated rights, these rights that we read into what the word liberty means in the due process clause, that they're actually being extraordinarily narrow. And that's how we get, or I'm using the word extraordinarily narrow. And that's how we get a decision like Dobbs that overturned Roe v. Wade. So yes, that is their view. (laughs) They may not say it is extraordinarily narrow, but you've got the right idea. Their basic view is that we, the justices, should not be striking down state or federal laws based on a claim of rights that was not either clearly spelled out in text or clearly understood and accepted from way back when. We shouldn't be striking down laws on that basis. So it is a narrower interpretation of what liberty is. One thing that's important to say is that Roe versus Wade changed the court and changed the sort of legal debate. There wouldn't be a Federalist Society, in my view, and there wouldn't be these three justices on had there not been Roe versus Wade, because for a whole generation of conservatives, it sort of taught them what the court should not do, which is create these new rights when there's a big dispute. And that conservative legal view will live on even now that Roe is gone. Do you think that there are other rights that the court has located in the word liberty of the due process clause that therefore are also potentially in danger at this point? I don't know. Do you remember there was a lot of concern that Clarence Thomas ticked off all the, in his view, the suspect decisions and Brett Kavanaugh and to some degree Gorsuch and, and even Alito said, no, no, we're not going down that road. But we don't really know. We don't really know. I don't think on gay rights and same-sex marriage, they're going to go backwards. But I do think there are going to be other areas 
they say like transgender rights or something where there's a strong conservative view that we shouldn't be telling school districts what to do or whatever, where they may pull back on those rights. But I think the best answer I can say on that is we need to just stay tuned and watch. I have one detailed follow-up on that, stay tuned, which is you mentioned the same-sex marriage decision, Obergefell. That is, as I read it, not just based on substantive due process, but also based on equal protection, because I read the opinion as very broad in its language. And Justice Kennedy, in my view, wrote kind of a purposefully, in some ways, vague decision. Do you think that we will see maybe more movement by advocates who want to try and protect certain individual rights looking to the Equal Protection Clause? I think they should. And I agree with you in part that part of that opinion was equal protection. I wish he'd have said it clearer and stronger. For some reason, I talked to Kennedy a little bit about the liberty cases, but never could get clear why he wouldn't write a more clear opinion that says you can't discriminate against people on these sorts of grounds. This is illegitimate and and it violates equal protection. He didn't want to quite say that. He always wanted to say like an equal right to dignity or whatever. But yes, I do think advocates would be well advised to use equal protection as an argument and stay away from resting everything on liberty. Because as you know, the liberty clause is a little bit vague, like what liberties are protected. But if you're discriminating against real people, why not make that argument? It violates equal protection. And of course, my understanding is that Justice Ginsburg, when she was an advocate, wanted the case dealing with the right to obtain an abortion. She wanted the case dealing with the Equal Protection Clause to come before the court, not the case dealing with the Substantive Due Process Clause, which is what the court ultimately obviously ruled on when it came to Roe v. Wade. I wanted to stay with Roe v. Wade for a second. You mentioned, which I think is fascinating, and I hadn't thought about it in such stark terms, the idea that there is no Federalist Society without Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if we could talk about some other decisions that in your time as a Supreme Court reporter, you think have been particularly impactful either for the country or for the court and how it functions. I thought the Citizens United decision of 2010 had a big impact because it basically was five of them, including John Roberts, essentially striking down all the laws that tried to limit big spending in elections. Congress supported those laws. McCain-Feingold, bipartisan law supported those laws. John Roberts never liked those laws. And the Citizens United case basically sent the message that the government was not going to be allowed to limit the influence of big money in politics. A couple of years later, then they struck down the reach of the Voting Rights Act across the South. Same thing, in my view, that they reached out to strike down a law that Congress had passed and supported and continued to support to limit the Southern states or prevent the Southern states, cities and counties from discriminating against Black and Hispanic voters. Those states are now the center of the Republican Party's base. The five Republican conservative justices struck down that law and said, oh, this was a stigma. And John Roberts made up a constitutional right that doesn't exist in the constant, this equal state sovereignty doctrine. And that's had a big impact because all those states have been ever since then using their power to either redistrict 
or limit voting. And the court just backed away from that, even though Congress and the 15th Amendment wanted to, to, to stay in that game. And of course, Obergefell was the one great advance and sort of civil rights and civil liberties over the last 30 years. I suppose it shows my bias that I don't think the right to carry a gun is, is necessarily that. There was already essentially a right to carry a gun. But it is remarkable and the period we've all lived through, how much the country had moved from the early 90s on gay rights and same-sex marriage to the Obergefell decision. And so I think that was a, a huge triumph for the gay rights movement and a sign really that the country is not going to go back. Kennedy was very wise, I think, to sort of wait until a series of decisions and then wait till the country, 70% of Americans in favor of sort of same-sex marriage and gay rights. And then the Supreme Court sort of confirmed that as a national constitutional right. I thought that was one of their great moments. And that brings up a theme that we've been talking about is basically the court either being a little behind with or ahead of public opinion. And we've seen the court do all of those things in the time that you have covered it. I want to end with, I think, one last question, because I don't know that there are many people in the world who have covered the confirmation hearings of every current Supreme Court justice. You happen to be one of them. Briefly, I'm wondering how you have seen the confirmation hearings transform and how different they are from when you first start covering them. It seems to me that the goal at this point is to appear knowledgeable, affable, experienced, but like a complete blank slate in some ways, but also like you have just the right amount of bias to satisfy those who are supporting you, but that you haven't really thought about any of the big questions in a way that indicate you would have made up your mind. And so briefly, kind of how have we seen the Supreme Court confirmation hearings change since you started covering the court? Well, with that buildup, Jessica, I hate to say, I think they've gone from bad to worse. The first one I went to, Justice Scalia was having his hearing. He's such a wonderful character. He came in smoking a pipe and just sort of sat there in the front row. It's just sort of like, he had this attitude as, I'm the smartest guy in the room and you're not going to touch me. And so it was fun to watch him. But what's changed, I think, in a very bad way, early on, there was a sort of charade, as you said, all the judges would go before the court. I just want to be a good judge who follows the law. I don't have any particular views. And if I do have any views, I can't tell you what they are. But there was at least a healthy respect on both sides for a really smart, talented, serious-minded lawyer. It could be Anthony Kennedy or David Souter or what. But with each decade, they've gotten more partisan. And now the last couple of years, there's not even a um, pretense that anybody on the Republican side is going to vote for the Democrat or any of the Democrats are going to vote for a Republican. So it has become less helpful and more, you know, sometimes just sort of mean-spirited and Partisan. I really liked it in the old days when both sides at least showed respect for mm -hmm. the judge or justice who was before them to answer questions. You might say this person's not going to agree with me, but I, at least I respect this as a very highly talented, capable person who's going to go on the Supreme Court. And I'd like to talk to you or about my views on this. There was a healthy respect, and we've sort of going the wrong direction 
in my view, that it's just 100% partisan now. I'll just say why. Because the Congress, like the rest of the country, has become more and more partisan. When I started covering Congress, there were moderate Republicans who would vote with Democrats and moderate Democrats who would vote with Republicans. And and the Congress in those years actually got things done. Ted Kennedy would always find a Orrin Hatch or somebody to work with, and they prided themselves on getting things done and working to the middle. The, the theory of politics then was you wanted to win the middle, you know, but get people from the moderate middle and agree. Now, both sides have played to their base, and it's highly partisan, and it carries over into everything, including Supreme Court nominations, unfortunately. Do we see any of that? I promise this will be the last question now. Looking forward, do we see any of that changing? Do we see the way these confirmation hearings are conducted changing? Do we see a situation where we might have a center of the court? At this point, I can't locate a center. I can locate a conservative wing and a liberal wing. And maybe we should actually just focus on that question, which is, do we have any sense of where we see the court going in the future? I would not be the one to give you the sort of optimistic things will work out. I do think there's an incentive and a belief inside the court. They all say this, and I really believe they mean it. If you talk to Kavanaugh, he'll tell you about the decisions that he joined with the liberals on. And you hear him talk, you think, boy, he's really, he's not with them most of the time. And Elena Kagan wants to find ways to work with the conservatives, and there are ways to narrow the question and focus on this. And I think there's at least some possibility that it won't be a center of the court on all the big questions, but I think there's still going to be an effort on the court to find ways to narrow questions, to work together, and find common ground on a lot of areas. But we will see, because the last term ended on a really bad note. Guns and abortion, the really big things that they didn't agree on anything, and it was a very sour mood. I think there's a possibility this term and the one after that may be a little better, but again, we'll have to wait and see. David, I'm so grateful for your time. There's so few people of your stature who have been covering the Supreme Court for uh, this period of time and can talk in such depth about all of these issues. As we end, is there anything else you wish that I had asked you? Well, no, I've enjoyed the conversation. I, I feel, as I say, very lucky. I've enjoyed covering the court from the day I arrived, and I, I still enjoy it very much. I don't get up there as much as I, I used to because of the pandemic. You know, it's also a lot easier to follow the court because the briefs are online. When I think of going way back, it was a very much a paper and pencil type organs, and it's changed a lot. Listen to some of the arguments mm -hmm. on the court, because you couldn't do that 20 or 30 years ago. And now you can listen to some of those cases and really learn about the law and learn about each of them, because they all bring like different questions. So I think it's worth paying attention to the Supreme Court. It's a serious group of people. They're actually nice people. I don't agree with them all the time, but they're nice people. And they're trying hard to get the right answer on the law and on the Constitution. So that was my conversation with David Savage. Again, he's been reporting for the Los Angeles Times since 1986. He covers the Supreme Court and other legal issues. I hope you enjoy this conversation. We're going to bring more like this to you. 
please, please, please do rate, review, and subscribe. And we wish everybody a great day. Thank you.